Good morning, Christ Central. I'm Andrew. I'm one of the pastors, and it is my great delight to continue our series in one another. And today our passage will be Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. Consider one another. Let's give our full attention. This is the reading of God's precious word. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Would you join me in a quick word of prayer? Father, we gather today eager to hear your voice. Would you speak to us now? Would you use me to proclaim your word and that we wouldn't just let it dwell in our minds, but Lord, would you help that word travel into our hearts? And would we live that out? Teach us today what it means to be truly humble and to consider others more significant than ourselves. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, there's a saying, it's a dog-eat-dog world, right? This saying, it it gets at this idea or this mentality that, hey, it's it's every man for himself, right? That people will do whatever it takes to be successful, whatever the cost, even if that includes harming others, even if that includes trampling and stepping upon others to get to where you need to go. Now, I was kind of curious, where did this... Where did this saying come from? And so I did some homework and traced this metaphor all the way back to about a century before the common era, right right around the New Testament time. The original Latin is transliterated, dog does not eat dog. And the meaning there is that animals are often better than humans in that they don't prey on their own kind. They don't consume each other. They don't take advantage of each other the way that we do. And we can see how that saying has evolved to what it is now. And we don't have to be so surprised, especially when we see it all over. We turn on the news, we see humans devour one another with the sword. Right? We take advantage of each other, we manipulate each other. We see acts of homicide, wars are waged. Why? Why does this happen? Where, where, where does this instinct happen? And for us as Christians, we go and trace that all the way back to Adam and Eve. When we see sinfulness, self-centeredness take, take hold of our, our early forefathers. And so this is our human condition. And as a church, we're, we're called though to be different. We're called to look different, but often we don't. And I think part of that is because we lose sight of this often. We lose sight of the attitude and the heart that we ought to have. And so today, as we continue our series of one another, you know, a lot of the other one another's have to do with things we need to do, right? Bearing one another's burden, that's coming next week. The week before, it was admonishing one another, encouraging one another. These are things we need to do. But this one another gets at something deeper, 
we take a step back and it gets at our hearts, our attitudes, our mindset, our perspective. So to to the degree that we can adopt this mentality to consider others more significant than ourselves, that is the degree that the world will notice that we are different and that they will know that we are disciples of Jesus. And so four points for us today, and we're going to jump right into our first one. Why unity? The basis of our unity. Paul opens up in our passage today. If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy. So Paul, Paul is bringing things, these things up. These are obvious things that are true of Christians. And he's making a rhetorical point. He's making a point like if water is wet, right? Of course, water is wet. If fire is hot, right? These are, these are obvious things. And so what he's saying is, you know, if there is any encouragement in Christ, which there is, there clearly is. It's so obvious. If there's any comfort from his love that you experience, if there is any participation that you have in the spirit, which you do, and if you have any sympathy towards the sacrifice that I have made, that I am imprisoned now for the sake of Christ, if you have any sympathy towards that, then fulfill my joy. Fulfill my joy. What is Paul's joy? It's interesting to note, right? Paul is writing Philippians in a jail cell, right? He's in prison at the time. And so he could have asked for anything to complete my joy by trying to help get me out of here, complete my joy by sending me some supplies. No, but, but instead he says, complete my joy by being of the same mind. He turns to unity. He asks them, stay united, that that is the thing that matters the most to me, that that is what is on my mind, your unity with one another. And I believe it's so important to him because it's the most compelling evidence to the world that Jesus is in fact savior of the world when we dwell in unity. And so he commands us, be united. The command of unity, the command to unity, be united. And we see in verse two, complete my joy, being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Now, this word for of the same mind in the Greek, it's used 26 times in the New Testament. And 10 of those times are found here in Philippians. So if you ever wanted a passage that, or, or a, a book in the Bible that gets that unity, don't look too far. It's right here. And this sense of being of one mind, having a, a certain mindset or perspective, it, it, it's not just an intellectual one, but it really combines the intellect with the heart. It's being united and in harmony, not just with what we know, but also in how we feel our affection, our mutual affection for one another. There is this word for full accord. In the Greek, you can really break it down literally to same soul, same soul. Maybe the English word soulmate captures that. Soulmate, that in the church, as brothers and sisters, we are to be so united that we are soulmates. You might say spirit mates because we share and participate in one spirit, the Holy Spirit. Paul then goes us to direct 
Uh, he gives us direction on what unity looks like. He says, first, it means avoid selfish ambition. Avoid it. Have nothing to do with it. Right? Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Uh, David Brooks, he's a New York Times columnist, and in uh, his bestseller called The Road to Character, he, he makes some observations about how our culture has changed from years past, how we don't really place as much emphasis on the importance of character. And he makes this observation about our, our culture today. Roughly 50 to 60 years ago, uh, psychologists who surveyed 10,000 adolescents, whether they consider themselves to be a very important person, the results, 12% said yes. So 12% of 10,000 said, hey, I'm a pretty important person. Fast forward, 1989, same question revisited. And this time, what do you guys think? 12%? No. 80% of boys, 77% of girls. I'm an important person. Uh, the narciss there's narcissism tests that are done, and the median score has risen 30% in the last two decades. And get this, super interesting, largest gains have been in the number of people who agree with the statements, I'm an extraordinary person, and I like to look at my body. Right? Maybe not so surprising if you live in Southern California. Uh, but we see a rise in self-esteem and also increases in desire for fame, and so we see just the selfish ambition, this conceit, so prevalent, so prominent in our culture today. This selfish ambition is really, in many ways, the root of all evil, is it not? Right? It's pride. It's arrogance. It's saying, I matter more than you, or I care a lot more about myself than I care about you. And the problem with selfish ambition is it, it leads to provoking. It leads to envy. It leads to hosts of all other sorts of wickedness. Now, for some of us, I think we need to take pause. We might not think of ourselves as super self-centered people, but I want us to take a moment and, and maybe really examine our hearts at this time because even pious, holy, external actions can be rooted in selfish internal motivations. You know, I confess even before you this morning, this is my struggle. Even as I stand here preaching something that's so not supposed to be about me, right? So supposed to be about God. And yet there is inner, this inner tension, this battle, even in myself of trying not to, to, to make it about me and my glory, my image, my ability, selfish ambition. Maybe some of you need to ask yourselves these questions. When it comes to giving the charitable causes, do you do it because it's popular because it makes you look good or because you really care? Are you working to fight and combat injustice because you, it's, it's rooted in your love for those who've been wronged or is it really rooted in your self-righteousness in trying to justify that I'm, I'm in fact morally superior to all these other people? Even why do you learn? Why do you learn, eager to learn, uh, know more, read more? Do you learn because you love? You see, knowledge is essential, but it's not sufficient. 
If you have all knowledge but not love, you are nothing. You can be brilliant but useless at the same time. Right? We see this, really the spirit of 1 Corinthians 13, where Paul makes it so clear to us, you can have everything, you can do everything, but if you're doing it without love, then it's rubbish, it's worthless. And maybe some of us today, we need to really consider, are we investing in nothing? Are we investing our lives in trash, in nothing? Because the things that we do without love will fade they won't matter in the scheme of eternity. Instead, Paul calls us pursue humility. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. I think Tim Keller gives a great definition of humility. And he says this, if we were to meet a truly humble person, we would never come away from meeting them thinking they were humble. They would not always be telling us they were a nobody because a person who keeps saying that they are nobody is actually a self-obsessed person. The thing we would remember from meeting a truly gospel humble person is how much they seem to be totally interested in us because the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. It is thinking of myself less. You see, gospel humility is not needing to think about myself. It's the freedom of self-forgetfulness, of not always having to feel like I need to insert myself into the picture, not having to be a part of the conversation. And I might even go a step further to say that you don't have as much room to think about yourself because you're far more preoccupied with thinking about others. I get this straight out of verse three, right? In humility, count others more significant than yourself. Now, I want to pause here on this word, count others. This is our one another for today, right? The literal one another is this Greek word, hegeomai. There's two definitions, two main usages. The first, to lead, right? To lead the way, to take lead, officials, rulers, to govern, to preside over, and then the second definition is, is maybe a more metaphorical uh, development of this uh, first definition. It, it has to do with leading mentally, right? To lead yourself to believe this. In other words, uh, we, we can use words, uh, synonyms like consider. To consider, to deem, to regard, to suppose, to value, to esteem, to count. Right? In humility, to consider others more significant than ourselves. Now, Paul gives us this command because I believe a lot of times we don't do this. A lot of times we consider ourselves more significant than others. And often we may not even be aware that we, we do this where we, we have a metric or a value system by which we, we judge and base others' significance off of. What is yours today? Right? Is it, is it race? Do we consider others based off of race? Does it regard socioeconomic class, right? You look at people differently when they have a different kind of a job or you treat them differently if they do this or if they do that. Is it based off gender? Is it based off physical ability or physical disability? Or maybe it's special needs 
Right? What is your metric for assigning significance? Because here Paul, Paul's not saying count others more significant than yourself if they do this or if they are like that. No, he, he doesn't do that. Right? And so I think his metric is very simple. It's we consider others more significant than ourselves because they're human and because they're made in the image of God and because they need God just as much as we need God. Now, this word is very interesting. Hegeomai, uh, we're going to go back to this word because it has to do with leadership. And I, I wonder too that when you think about leaders, you do consider leaders differently, don't you? There's that, that connection, right? When you think about a, a leader doing well, well-respected, well-received, often we consider them more significant than ourselves, superior to ourselves. And so I want you to, to, to imagine, imagine someone just in your mind now, maybe you think of them, you esteem them a little bit less. Or you consider them not as, not as significant. And instead to imagine if they were a well-respected leader. How differently would you treat them? How differently would you esteem them? In fact, what if you treated them as you would if it was Jesus himself in the flesh? How would you consider them? And I wonder if that's what Jesus had in mind when he said, truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. It seems pretty clear that Jesus takes personally how we consider one another. Now, this isn't easy, right, to really think. It, it, it takes mental energy and effort. It, it's hard. It, it takes sacrifice. It takes service. And considering others more significant than yourselves means moving from a consumer mindset to a contributor mindset, right? We're not no longer asking what's in it for me. What do I get out of this? But instead we're thinking more, what can I contribute? How can I serve? What can I give? How can I be a blessing? It's far better to give than to receive. Now, it's not easy. It's not easy to do this. It's not easy to have this mindset. So how? How can we grow in this mindset? Where do we find the power for this kind of thinking? And we're going to turn to that now. The how, the power for unity, it is this. If we go a little bit further in our passage, we didn't read this, but verses 5, verses five to, to 8, we see the secret. We see how. You see, the power for unity is found in humility. But that humility must first be observed outside of ourselves. That humility must first be observed in God himself. And so let me read for you verses 6 through 8. A lot of scholars think that this, uh, commentators think this is a beautiful hymn, an early hymn, and it says this. Who though he, Jesus, was in the form of God, did not count, there's that word again, count, consider, he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." See, only in Christianity do we get a God who exhibits such humility. 
that he would become like us, that God would become born in the likeness of men as a baby. That's humiliating for God, right? A vulnerable baby. And on top of that, he would have to become obedient, right? He would become obedient. This is something Jesus could only do as a man. This is something he could only experience in that capacity because as God, he doesn't report to anybody, right? He doesn't have to obey anyone. He, he does whatever he wants, but to even become obedient, that's humiliating because it means to, for God himself to put himself under the law, to place himself under rules. And he would be obedient even to death. Right? That Jesus, he would die a humiliating death. He would be ridiculed and mocked. He would be stripped naked, beaten and tortured dying on a cross, a Roman cross, because he considered and esteemed us, he valued us as more significant. Charles Spurgeon says this, the lower Jesus, the lower he stoops to save us, the higher we ought to lift him in our adoring reverence. Blessed be his name. He stoops and stoops and stoops. And when he reaches our level and becomes man, he still stoops and stoops and stoops lower and deeper yet. Wow, what lengths, what depths God is willing to go for us that even our selfish ambition, even our sin cannot separate us from his love. With the son of God descending from so great a height, how crazy, how ridiculous is it for us to try, us who are nothing to try to lift ourselves up with pride. When this, when this grips you, right, when we see the humble one and what he's done for us, I think that's only then will we be able to consider others more significant than ourselves. I love how it doesn't just end there, but in verse nine, Paul goes on to say, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, right? The beautiful irony of this, the most humiliating moment is simultaneously the most glorious moment. It is the moment of his exaltation. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. The way down is up, the way up is down, and I believe for us in the moments of our lives that are going to matter most in eternity are going to be those moments of humility where we consider others more significant than ourselves and that we chose to die to ourselves and our desires so that others might live unto God. I want to end our time with just practical points about application and we're going to be talking about applying Applying unity, our fourth and final point. Um, Philippians 2, in a couple verses, Paul goes on to say, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Right, we're called to actually work. It takes effort, right? Considering others more significant, that's not automatic, right? That doesn't just happen naturally, but it takes effort, it takes grace-powered, God-given, Holy Spirit-driven effort. 
And so these are some practical ways to think about how we can do this, how we can put some effort into this, especially as we launch small groups. First, consider the goal. All right, first, consider the goal. Verse four tells us to look out to the interests of others, but that begs the question, what are the interests of others? What is most important for other people? In other words, what is the goal? What is the goal? Right, our best interest, is it, is it just to, to have a good friendship, never argue? Is that our, our goal in the relationships we're in, just to avoid any, any tension points? No, that can't be it. Right? We heard last week, we want to learn to get better at admonishing each other. Right? Because the goal is always about believing in Jesus and following him. That that's our goal. That is what we know is in other people's best interests. And so to that end, we want to see and serve people towards. And that is our ultimate interest. Second, Consider your resources. Are there people in the church that you can serve, that you can do something to help them, to be a blessing? Here are some examples of what resources you can consider that you have. First, attention. Attention. I think that's the starting point of all ministry. It starts with, is it even on our radar, right? Is it, is it even in our attention? Because... Uh, a lot of times we're not even aware, but attention is also not enough because we can be aware and still not do anything. And so attention needs to be followed up with intention and then action. And for some of you, you're going to have to start here. Maybe it's just praying, God, give me more awareness of where I can be of use and help. Help me to be more attentive to the needs around me. Maybe some of you maybe are more apathetic. You, you just feel like you don't have that heart to, to want to serve. And that's a great starting point too. To start in praying, God, increase my capacity to love. Increase my capacity to give. Sometimes love and service is more an act of the will. And the feelings follow after. Second, time. Time. For me, I'll be honest, time's the hardest thing for me to give. And I get easily impatient. You can ask my wife. And oftentimes, that's an indicator that you believe your time is more significant than someone else's time. These are some things I'm trying to get better at. And I would encourage you to maybe do some of this. Schedule in your time, in your calendar, moments where you, you check in on other people. Maybe block off, carve out time to intentionally think about the people around you, to pray for them, right? Put names in your schedule so that you're regularly praying for the people around you. Often when we fail to plan, we're planning to fail. So would you take some time to try to create time for others in your life and in your calendar? Third, money. I think the best example of this, beautiful example, is this church in Philippi, where Paul says nobody else partnered with him in that way, but this church gave. And I think we see this church also probably in the backdrop in 2 Corinthians 8. And I want to read this with, uh, with us, verses 1 through 5. Paul, when he's collecting funds for Jerusalem Christians to bring relief, he's raising funds and he says this. 
We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Now we might imagine someone begging to be excused from giving, but wow, do you see a heart that is gripped, a heart that is gripped by a savior who would lay his life down for others. Look at how they responded. They begged to participate in this contribution. They begged, can we give? It'll cost us, but we want to. And they implored Paul to accept their funds. Their heart went first to the Lord. Their generosity went after them. And I believe if we and our hearts are given and entrusted into God in that way, devoted to God, then we'll be able to serve each other in the selfless, sacrificial way as well. They were poor, but rich in generosity. Small offering, but from a really big heart. Lastly, consider your mindset. I think so often it's automatic. Like we're so self-centered. When I think about a long day, Right? At the end of a long day, there's, there's been times during quarantine where we're tired, but, but who's going to make dinner? And so my wife and I, you know, my wife will ask me, hey, what do you want to do about dinner? And, and I'm so exhausted that I, my first instinct sometimes is just, hey, give me, st- I need a break, give me space, leave me alone. And I could be so self-centered. And she, she'll often respond in frustration, hey, I get it, I'm tired too, but we got to eat. So what are, what's the plan? And, and, and then the internal dialogue, oh, just you don't understand though. And I had this kind of a day and, and, and it's so easy to make it about me, 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 me. And I confess to you, self-centeredness is my default. It's so default. It's like an, it's like first instinct. And so considering our mindset means we want to work on adjusting our first instinct, working on those, those reflexes, those reactions so that they're not so automatic but maybe more so that they are other-centered instead of self-centered. And so I want to just give us this rule, I think a rule for other esteem to do that well. When it comes to you, be so quick to give God credit and glory for anything good you do. Right? Have a sober view of yourself. Anything you do, you couldn't do it if God didn't empower you and gift you with the ability to do that. Give him all glory and credit. But be so quick to detect and correct your faults. Be so quick to critique yourself. When it comes to others, on the other hand, be quick to esteem whatever they do that's deserving of praise. Be so quick to compliment, so quick to encourage, and be so quick to overlook any faults, to let and allow love to cover over. I believe if we can do this, our community, wow, we would look so different, so attractive to this world. Uh, Commentator David Guzik says, uh, if I consider you above me and you consider me above you, then a marvelous thing happens. We have a community where everyone is looked up to. No one is looked down on. 
I want to end our time with an excerpt uh, from Scott Saul's book, From Weakness to Strengths. And I think it just captures so well the attitude. It summarizes all of this, the attitude that I want us to have, I want us to leave with. In America, it is shameful to come in last and laudable to come in first. But in Jesus, the first will be last and the last will be first. In America, leaders crave recognition and credit. In Jesus, leaders think less of themselves and give credit to others. In America, leaders compare and compete so they will flourish. In Jesus, leaders sacrifice and serve so others will flourish. In America, leadership often means my glory and happiness at your expense. In Jesus, leadership always means your growth and wholeness at my expense. In America, the strong and powerful rise to the top. But in Jesus, the meek inherit the earth. Christ central, would we be a meek and humble people? a people who's quick to consider others more significant than ourselves, that we would look towards their interests and that we would contemplate how can we serve? How can we love and give and sacrifice? That it would not be a duty, but truly that it would be delight and that we would find unity in this mindset, unity in humility, like-mindedness, in being lowly minded as we look to the one who stooped all the way down to bring us all the way up. So this week, take some time out and really think, how can you apply this? How can you consider others more significant than yourself? And let's go out and do that. Serve, love, help, support. Let's do that together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that you, you came for us, a selfish people, a sinful people who often rebel and want nothing to do with you, who want everything for ourselves, credit, glory, honor, and praise. We thank you for your humble love that wouldn't allow that, that you would come and stoop all the way down to bring us into a relationship with you. That kind of a unity inspires our unity with each other. And so would you help us to live in light of that truth? Would our basis for unity always be in what you've done for us? We love you, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.